I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabel. And this is Lomance, a podcast about romance novels, about spiffy cars, about loving your sister's fiance, about loving your in laws, about lush gardens, about New England in the fall, about a strange number of orphans. About wool suits and smart hats. About banking and jobs. More about banking than romance sometimes. About mysteries with vaguely foreign adversaries. About America's colonial projects in South America. But not really that. But it is that. But not really that. A little bit that. Not self-aware that it's about that, but it's about that. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) About having a stable of bows. About hedge trimming. About the things the young folks get up to, like bowling. (laughs) But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, we are so excited to kick off our Category Is series officially with a golden oldie. We are going to discuss How Can the Heart Forget by Emily Loring. This sweet little puppy might not even be a category romance. It might not even be a romance. (laughs) Uh, Published originally in 1960 by Little Brown, it then had... 13 republishings, and ours is from the 1974 Bantam edition. 1960, and that was after Emily Loring had died. So we talk about this on our announcement episode, but her sons published, hired a ghostwriter to finish her unfinished works, and then published, I think, those 20 books uh, posthumously a few times. Yeah. So Emily Loring gives us this book from... Beyond the Grave. Uh, Thanks, Emily, for doing the most. What's interesting, one of the interesting things we learned in our research, and it was so frustrating to research this book, because Emily Loring's first publishing, I think, was in 1928, which Harlequin didn't, and Mills didn't push out Mills and Boone, which is kind of the demarcation, a demarcation that you can use of romance starting as we know it today, in like 1930. So she, in fact, her work, while we now understand it as romance novels, was just women's fiction at that point. And when she was getting published by uh, Penn and then eventually Little Brown, she didn't start writing or publishing, I guess, until she was in her 50s. She lived a really long time. And her work lived on after her. Do you want to read the back of the book so people can know what this particular tale was about? I do. You ready? Triangle. Anne Jerome stood on her terrace and stared. Coming toward her was Miles Langdon, who had been away for a year. He was her childhood friend and the man she loved. But he was also her sister Sonia's fiancé. That hardly surprised Anne. Men were taken with her charm, wit, but it was Sonia's beauty that really dazzled them. Yet Sonia was in love with someone else, but she wouldn't break her engagement to Miles and didn't know if she could continue to keep the secret of her love or if Sonia would run off with the man she was involved with. And Miles, what would he do? 
How can the heart forget a wise and witty story of three high-spirited young people and their hidden loves? Cherry, cherry. (laughs) I'm in love with my sister's fiance. Oh, man. This book. And then the sister comes out and she's wearing like her little white wife beater. And she's like, I don't give a damn because I'm in love with my uncle. My step uncle. (laughs) My step uncle. We're not blood relations. And then her her dad and her stepmom are like, what? The audience goes wild. Yeah. Can you imagine? That's what actually happens in this book. But like very like our family came over on the Mayflower version of that. Indeed. Exactly. The book opens with our heroine Anne sitting in her evening gown, which is a beautiful color of emerald green. And it's being turned into these shadows because she's walking alone in her garden, spying on her sister, who is indeed engaged to an absent fiance, watching her sister kiss this man named Joe Snell, who is the local tough guy he is the villain you can tell because his last name sounds like snail and smell (laughs) exactly local tough guy and then the sisters both in floor-length evening dresses have a row in their childhood bedroom where all of this comes out and just to give you a flavor of what this novel is giving all of us during the row the sister Anne who is the older sister says sorry child but I just can't believe that you're really in love with that flashy manager Joe Snell Joe Snell is not flashy Sonia sat bolt upright and the words came in a furious tide he is a coming young executive with plenty of zip and dash and I am in love with him (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that's pretty much like I love the language of this book. I love reading that like old timey like mid-Atlantic accent that people were using back then. But I also love that you point out that they're both in evening gowns because these sisters are very much created as like oppositional forces. And so our main character Anne, she has dark hair, beautiful blue eyes, and her sister has beautiful blue eyes but blonde hair. And Anne is wearing an emerald dress. And her sister is wearing a ruby dress. And they're always like kind of like their outfits are a way of communicating that they're the same but different, you know, drastically different. And there's lots of those little like detail, like I can't tell you much about anybody's personality, but I can tell you a whole lot about their wardrobe. Yes. Which because and there are so many characters. Oh, gosh, yeah. For a book that clocks in at 213 pages, there is an insane cast of characters, and all of them have a very specific role to play in both the emotional undertones of the plot and also the plot itself. It's not as though anybody's, like, extraneous, but it's also as though everyone is kind of extraneous. (laughs) Yeah, no one is extraneous, but I don't care about any of them. Yeah, exactly. And while I was reading the first half of this book, it really reminded me of Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life, where it's like, I'm introduced into a town, and I know who I'm supposed to care about because they have the most staged time, right? Like Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed, who plays Mary. I know that I'm supposed to care about them. And when Miles finally shows up about 25 pages in, like he has a very Jimmy Stewart vibe. He's like a tall drink of water. And he's like, if we find out that he was orphaned and that he's like this good person and that everybody loves him and he can like whatever but 
just like in It's a Wonderful Life, it's like you have the, you know, local cab driver and you have the World War One vet who is doing odd jobs around town and becomes the guard at the bank where Anne works. And then we have Joe Snell, who's the up and coming manager of the foundry and like all of his workers and bowling buddies. And then we have the next door neighbors who also happen to be Miles, our hero's adoptive parents. And the dad owns the bank and the mom runs like the women's auxiliary voting club the mysterious renters in the neighborhood like newly married couple who got to buy a house in connecticut for some reason (laughs) right they used to be able to do that thing (laughs) ostensibly with the gi bill like i don't know everybody feels a sketch of a character not a caricature but like a sketch but i would say It's a Wonderful Life. There's a lot of emotional resonance with everyone. I would say that's not necessarily so in this book. Like, I was able to, like, identify the hero and heroine because I read romance, right? And I also talk about it a lot. So I'm able to be like, okay, even though there are all these other men circling around, I know that I have to focus on Miles. And Miles has the most, because Miles has the most backstory for me to pull from. But like so much happens in this book and so little of it is emotional. It's a lot of plot. So we find out that Miles hasn't been in contact with his family and they're all in a lot of distress because he went down to South America to build a bridge Turns out that he was, there was a bombing at the bridge, and so it undid all of his work, and he was injured, and he has been recovering in a California hospital. When he returns home, he has a scar on his face and his arm in a bandage, and all of, and he can't use his left hand or something. He can't use his left arm, and his... The doctors haven't said whether or not he'll ever regain use of it, but his adoptive mother is like, it's a neurosis, and when the time comes, he'll be able to use it. And so our heroine is constantly trying to break the neurosis that is preventing him from using his left arm. And then at the end, isn't she like, pass the salt? And he did with his left arm. No. There is there is like some miracle cure at the very end. Yeah, but the miracle cure is her. What, it, what, how do we, but isn't it something like they're at dinner? What is it? She's kidnapped and is the car wrecks. Oh. And then she's going to fall into the ravine and the only way to save her is with both hands. It's very dramatic. I love that you've invented this other narrative. Well, it's like, I'm sorry. Like, you're like, it's very dramatic. It's like she's sitting in a car. That's about to go over into the rushing waters of the river. And she's also been kidnapped. And the guy who kidnapped her, like that whole scene is amazing, right? Because like (laughs) a South American man who shows up in the, the small community and we know to be fearful of him because he's different and an outsider just picture him with like a pencil thin mustache and he's a flashy dresser and he's he is a flashy manager he serves to show us that joe snell is really just an up-and-comer with a lot of zip and verve he's basically in a zoot suit with like a clove cigarello yeah exactly It turns out that, so, okay, so Miles is like, I'm never going to be an engineer again. It's far too dangerous. (laughs) And And I only have one arm, so my big dreams of being a bridge builder are crushed. Also, very much like, very much like Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life, like crushed dreams, trying to be chill about it. 
but yeah, so he goes to work at the at the at the bank that his uncle owns. He's an orphan. He was raised by his uncle and aunt. He, it just so happens Anne works there. We know slightly because we do get some of his interiority that when he was exploded in South America, he realized that he doesn't actually love Anne's sister. He loves Anne. So as soon as he gets home, he tries to break off the engagement with Sonny slash Sonia. So he immediately wants to break off the engagement. Even though she's been running around on him with Joe Snell, she's, she thinks it would make her look bad. She's like, you can't make it. We're not calling this off. Everyone's going to think I'm a jerk for leaving you because you got a bum arm or whatever. What will people say? What will people say? No, we are we are seeing this through. <laughs> he just kind of accept. Like you would think that that would lead to like a comedy of errors where he's trying to get her to break up with him, and she's you know trying to stay together even though she's cheating on him. Like that would have been a really funny, fun book, right? That's not this book. He's just like, okay, I respect that. We can only call off an engagement if both people agree. Which was that a thing in the fifties? I don't know. And like the politics. I hope not. (laughs) Of the thing, because, like, also, because she's written him a Dear John letter while he's in South America. Yes! That, like, he has not received. And so she tells her dad that she's going to marry Joe Snell, and he's like, well, you haven't heard from Dear Miles, Dear College-Educated Fancy Man Miles, so do me the courtesy of waiting three months after you receive his reply releasing you from the engagement. And then you can marry Joe Snell. And, like, even the language of being released from an engagement and the idea that, like, the man can do it, but, like, a girl can only ask to be released. If a guy wants to break the engagement, the girl has to agree. All of these weird-ass seating arrangements. And it's all for society, right? She just doesn't want to look bad. I get it. Like, this town is in everybody's business. Like, people would definitely talk about Sunny behind her back if she left beloved college-educated Miles in the lurch. We're saying Connecticut, but it's actually in the, like, Washington, D.C. suburbs area because their father, yeah, he's always in D.C. He's a lawyer. And the, the daughters are, like, in their 20s, I believe, still living at home. But both of them have jobs, which I think we'll get to later. But Joe Snell is Sunny's boss. He's her secretary. She's his secretary. Uh, Right. In any case. Well, not in any case. It matters that she's his secretary. (laughs) But that classic trope, right? But there's like all of these community get-togethers and gatherings, uh, like at the country club. And our heroine hosts a coffee and cake party with like her full she, like there's a whole thing about how big their coffee carafe is their housekeepers like their their staff are involved and it's like all of these characters it's it's remarkable to me that so little time is given to anyone's interiority like the simple fact that it doesn't like dissolve into this like comedy of manners everyone just like accepts Oh, well, then we'll stay engaged. And if we have to get married, we have to get married. Toodaloo. There's a cat burglar going on in the area. Like, it's hard to know which way is up because there's not like an emotional center pulling through this book. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. We get a scene when Miles comes home with his bum arm where it has just rained and Anne comes running out of the house, pelting in her cornflower blue dress, which matches her eyes, and throws herself into his arms, 
but it's not his arms. It's only his one arm. And she immediately notices that it's not both, but she's not going to say anything because that'll just make him embarrassed. Then she watches her sister and Miles like meet up and then she leaves. That is the end of her interiority. That is the end of her eating her heart out. And that is the emotional beating center of this book. And then everything else is just on the surface. So the book is, she's eating her heart out. You know that. Like, yeah. And like the very like Springer-esque family dynamics, because by the end of the book, Joe Snell sucks. He fires Sunny because she leaves a safe unlocked and some shady characters of a certain race that they're not familiar with in the community come and I mean, probably them, right? Come and steal stuff. They're looking for Miles's compass, like his measuring compass, not his directional compass. And because it's got like, there was like this whole thing with the CIA and it turns out that Miles was like, his engineering company was like a pawn in this hostile takeover of a South American country, a resistance to the resistance. The way even that is presented is as if it's a cornflower blue dress that sets off your her eyes. Like there's absolutely no interrogation. It's just like, oh, the CIA is doing that. Okay. <laughs> like, what is insane about this? So like the bridge that he's building, right? Because his American company has been contracted to work in this unnamed South American country that is not Brazil because they speak Spanish and not Portuguese, which are villains kindly remind the townspeople. They're like, I don't speak Portuguese because I'm not from Brazil. And I was like, well, that's that's nice, I guess. But Miles Langdon is in a South American country, totally unnamed, building a bridge for a dictator that the CIA and American companies and American capital are propping up. The bridge is blown up by what is suspected to be a counterinsurgency against the rebels. And he has this Irish foreman named Red Fallon. Oh, I feel the sympathy for the rebels. Like I get what it is to like want to fight for freedom. And Miles says in this like insane voice that just sounds very like rah, rah, America is well if you trade one you know rebel for another like you're you're gonna end with a dictator and the common people won't be served until they truly have democracy and bridges are democracy and I'm like what are you talking about Miles those things are not the same listen we've got to have dictators until we have democracy and we've got to use our dictators to get to the dictator democracy America first full stop that's like basically gibberish it's like that that woman in the like miss teen usa pageant who was asked why can't the majority of american school children locate canada on a map she's just like first of all therefore therefore first of all and then and then also but like there's basically pause for applause in the book itself like he nailed that explanation of So true. So true. It's like, he nailed it. We are definitely not building dictatorships with CIA money in the South. The whole thing was crazy. So what they're looking for in Miles's bag is also that like Miles is basically a patsy because one of the people, his clerk working for him, this guy named Walter Bruce, who's going to come up later, has been smuggling messages in weird, bad poetry slash limericks to his girlfriend, Alice, air quotes, in the States. But Alice is actually the feds. And then Walter Bruce is 
murdered and tortured and the feds and the South American insurgents are looking for these coded messages so that they can like continue to do the thing. The feds trying to stop the coup and the South Americans trying to win back their country from American capital. Okay, good. (laughs) And then it turns out that their mysterious next door neighbors are brother and sister. Peter Bruce is the cousin of Walter Bruce because the C in CIA stands for cousins, cousins in arms. And he's trying to like, he's on like a side project. After you are tortured to death by an insurgent group in a country that is not your own for a cause that is not your own, that is completely capitalist in nature, what do you want more than anything but for your cousin to infiltrate a suburb of Washington, D.C. in order to finish the job. That's 100% what your ghost wants. (laughs) That's what your ghost is seeking. That's who Peter Bruce is. Uh, His sister and the father of the girls, our main, our our ladies, Anne and Sonny, fall in love and get married. And then Peter Bruce uh, falls in love with Sonny and they're going to get married. And then um, I'll... Anne and Miles are also in love and they're going to get married, a triple wedding at the end of the book. That's the happily ever after. And as Isabel alluded to, there's also this like very dramatic kidnapping scene where the South, um, the person from amorphous South America, but not Brazil kidnaps her and she escapes, but then she ends up like tottering on the side of a cliff in one of her gigantic cars because this is the 1950s and miles comes and using both hands he is able to open the car door and yank her out simultaneously (laughs) and all is well all of that really interesting stuff happens so as you can tell like the most interesting part of this book is not the romance which kind of makes me think of it still feels like proto-romance And we've read this in other categories where the adventure is much more important than the falling in love. And, like, I think what interests women of that time, like, if we can take this as, like, an example. And I think it's also important to keep in mind this was ghostwritten by someone who was a former personal assistant of Eleanor Roosevelt. It's interesting to think of this as a really interesting whodunit mystery that has very little to do with the romance, but you have to include the idea that this main character is going to end up married in order to get it published because it seems like such an afterthought. That's just wild speculation on my part, but I think there's evidence in the text. I agree, although I would say that like it is an afterthought. What seems to be the driving force of the plot, Anne is a good person, and Anne is a thoughtful person, and Anne deserves to be fulfilled. Not just happy, but fulfilled. So, like, Anne went to college. She is currently a bank teller, but she always gets to work early and has this half-hour-long meeting with president of the bank, who is also Miles' uncle. Uh, She's not a teller. She's his personal secretary, but she fills in as a teller. She has no problem doing the grunt work. Right, and she's also training other people, and she's also, like, she's an integral part of the bank itself and making it run because she was really good at math. And so, like, there's this version of this story that maybe doesn't even include the romance where, like, Anne becomes 
the president of the bank and lives like a badass awesome life <laughs> like she's very cool under pressure there's this scene at the bank with these guys are trying to steal something in the safe in miles's office and so then the world war one vet charlie cheval who the town is also trying to like give jobs to he's the part-time guard at the bank whips out his gun and starts firing at the guy who is in miles's office stealing something out of the safe there's this scene where she's like in the line of fire and she just throws herself back a little bit so that she's not in like the direct line of fire miles comes tumbling out of the hallway and is screaming at the guard to stop shooting because he's gonna hit someone and it won't be the bad guy and i was both so thrilled by that moment because I was like you're right he is not properly trained to handle this weapon and is a danger to himself and others and not the bad guy so that felt like <laughs> really good for me in this moment as this book is speaking to me in 2021 but also the fact that Anne was so cool under pressure and that Miles is like you need to go lie down she's like no I'm okay I was only worried you know for a second but then you came and I wasn't worried at all and he's like you're way too chill like I want you to go lie down because I'm so worried and she's like no I'm good I don't need to lie down and I was like I really like her you know she's very plucky in the way Mary Tyler Moore in the Dick Van Dyke show is plucky well there's this like early kind of soft form of feminism in this book so Anne is forced out of her job because Miles begs his uncle to fire her so that she won't be put in the line of fire again because I guess like it's possible that they would go through the same robbery like Miles is kind of an idiot like it's so obvious like they're trying to get your compass they're going through your chest you're like Irish maid who is coded as dumb because she's Irish uh let some South Americans come in and like go through your stuff and and he's just like I wonder what this could be about so he's kind of an idiot and I think the book is fully aware that he's an idiot because it also shows how much presence of mind Anne has uh, under crisis. We'll get to a scene about that uh, that I think clearly depicts that once I talk about my sexiest part. So Anne gets fired because he's dumb and can't reconcile the idea that she was in a place where a gun was. And then her sister gets fired on the same day because she... Once again, coding, putting these sisters as oppositional forces, she forgot to lock a safe and someone came in and stole from them. So she gets fired from her company and they're at home having lunch. And it's clear that the simple fact that they like went home to their manor and their housekeeper prepared them lunch on their day they were fired. And they have a conversation about whether or not they're going to get a job again. And both women say yes. It's important for me to have a cause and a purpose and somewhere to go during the day. I feel like I can make a greater contribution to society as a part of the workforce. And this is like, a in the 1950s, this is a pretty revolutionary idea and something that's really interesting that it got, you know, pop, because I say the 1950s because this book couldn't have been outlined in the 60s, even though it was first published then, because our authoress died in 58. But once we get to choice feminism, right, which is kind of a dirty word now, you know, you should be entitled to be a housewife as well as a part of the workforce. And that idea is already kind of simmering in this novel because there's so much focus put on what happens to the women in the workplace, right? Even their relationships 
are defined what hap- by what happens in the workplace because they each work with their paramour. I think it's putting a lot of emphasis on that space as a space for women to be womanly as it was understood then. And I wasn't expecting to see that kind of ideal so clearly laid out in a book from this era. Mm-hmm. And as we were talking about where the clothes are doing a lot of sketching of character, there's a moment where Miles is complimenting her on her conservative bank suit, uh, which is very nice navy pinstripe. And then he sees her later that evening where she's dressed up for like the party that they're going to go to. And he's like, you know, I really liked you in your suit, but this is so much more becoming. And she's like, they're both nice. <laughs> yes. And I too was really taken aback by that ethos because it it feels so baked into the book and so natural. And so like her reaction, she's like, they're both nice. I like wearing both of them. Both of them are part of me. Miles is like, oh yeah, okay. Totally moves on. And there's no question Miles, our hero, or even Peter who ends up with Sunny about like, n- neither one of these men have said anything about like, well, now you don't have to work anymore. Now you can just like be home and have babies. That isn't a conversation that either romantic leads have with their heroine. There's also a point at which our heroine is hosting a party and Peter Bruce compliments her on her ability to, you know, circulate the room. And she's like, oh, that's because I'm able to ask my neighbor to run the coffee station. And she's so great at introducing people. So it makes it easier for me to be a hostess. And I also love that because I feel like it's such um It's such a, (laughs) I don't know if this is what the book was doing, right? But I always think of like feminism as a collective rather than like an individual being able to do it all. And so that was a really nice moment for me. Even having like, I think you're so right about character details and internality being placed in like the materiality of the book. Like um, our heroine is very invested in like her home and she doesn't like the idea of leaving her home. But her father is very detached from it. And her outfits, as you said, she's able to, she says, this is, they're all, they're both nice, right? And then the fact that the sisters are always wearing like opposite colors is really interesting. But it also, so it kind of, the details when I was first reading it, I'm so glad we've had this conversation because I feel like I've had this revelation because the, The details in the book when I was first reading it, I was like, well, this feels very Nancy Drew. And I never got into Nancy Drew because I felt like there was all this talk about their outfits and like what she put in her suitcase and like the jeweled dagger had rubies like she had seen at the Museum of Natural History. But I was reading something about the history of novels and um, they talked about how early novels included all of these really mundane details. And it had to be very like, material like what it was describing because people were like why do we need novels why do we need fiction when we have poetry and so when people wrote novels they were very much trying to distinguish like I'm doing a make up of something that's almost documentary like right when you think about how early this author started writing and how old she was when she was 50 years old in 1922 when she started publishing Like, I think that ethos would have been very influential and still seen, especially in popular literature of the time. And I love the way, though, that it's not like that deeper, that internality isn't there. It's just coded in a way that you and I are not conditioned to understand right away without 
having this kind of conversation. Absolutely. And that this internality, as you said, is truly collective. That Anne and Sunny are made more whole by their relationship to their next door neighbor and the newly married couple across the street and, you know, the the post guy and like that the town itself is part and parcel of who they are as people and who they want to become. And so I think when I, when I first read that Sonny who wanted to break this engagement then didn't want to break it when Miles came home with uh, an injured arm, because what will people say? It was, it was only through, reading the entirety of this book and understanding how um, community-based these these two young women have defined themselves as that that made a kind of sense and her horror of being understood as a vapid or shallow young woman was so interesting in that light where it's like she didn't want to be perceived as a bad person even though she didn't want to marry this young man anymore she was right she would have she would have been ostracized like a part of her life would have well and truly been over yeah i also love the fact that even though the love of her life has returned with an injured arm out of the blue Anne is still like no i promised my new work friend i would go to a barbecue at her house and she doesn't have many friends in this town and so that is a much more important priority to me and i wonder if that doesn't come from our romance novels so centered on romance now because our lives are much more centered on the idea of romance like i i know like the idea of romantic love as we know it today, existed back then, right? Because we see it in films and and movies. But I think in like a a more real way, like marriage is a practical thing. Like Sonny was willing to see that through to the bitter end. And so was Miles. This idea of it, like you don't, the person you end up marrying doesn't have to be your um, your entire being, right? Your entire emotional support system. Your entire community doesn't need to be defined mm-hmm. by him or her. Maybe that's part of it. I think that's a really good point. I think that's also part of why I was making this It's a Wonderful Life connection, because that's also deeply embedded in that film, where it's like, it takes a village not only to raise a child, but also to support a romantic marriage. There's the bank run, and then yeah. they can't go on their honeymoon, and then Bert and Ernie play the music and do all <laughs> the stuff. But there are a couple of times where like the town itself comes to try to rescue George Bailey and Mary as a unit and I don't think I understood like I think I understood that implicitly but I didn't understand it explicitly and this book really made it explicit for me in a way that was like this book is comfy I (laughs) there's nothing here that's that like stood my hair on and stuff that I was like oh that's amazing it was like it was comfy yeah all right, should we talk about our paratextual content or our sexy Yule content first? <laughs> Let's talk about our paratextual content really quick and then <laughs> jump into sexiest because I think what's in the paratext will lead us into sexiest. <laughs> yes, so very good. All right. The paratext in this is actually pretty uh scant for a category it has the list of all of her other books uh, her posthumous line which go from two to 49 it has this amazing uh thing at the front that says the low-priced bantam book has been completely reset in a typeface designed for easy reading and was printed from new plates it contains the complete text of the original hardcover edition not one word has been omitted 
you can really see like the progress of technology and publishing and how we understand it in these copyrights that appear in category romances because category romances as we're going to find out from this paratext get republished quite often and so like the way you cover your ass <laughs> by saying like it was printed on new plates but it's totally word for word the same like is really interesting especially when we compare it to our most recently published uh book in the next episode absolutely uh and then in the back of the book we have a coupon to buy the rest of emily loring's books so you can get 50 cents off bringing your total to a whopping 75 cents for a book it's an advertisement for england's mistress of romance georgiette hire her books are 95 cents uh and you can also have a coupon if you just send in your address they will send you a book and at the end there is this insane advertisement for a book series called angelique has no author so then morgan and i had to look up what angelique is <laughs> yeah the, the ad literally we'll publish um pictures of it on our instagram follow us at womance but it just says angelique in the ad so we were like what is that it's a french institution published by author Anne Gollum, sometimes with uh, a, a male Gollum, who I assume is like her husband, Aunt Serge. <laughs> and they also made lots of what I used to refer to in my younger days as French love movies, which are those like basically softcore movies that were made in France that would run on like HBO and Cinemax after 11 p.m., uh, in the 90s and 2000s, which is like a crazy adventure story. And like, and we read Angelique's like full, like a summary of the full series. And she hits like every rom historical romance trope on her journey. Absolutely. So uh, something to look forward to. Womance is definitely going to be diving into the English translations of the French institution Angelique at some point, because we just we have to. We can't leave those covers alone. Do look at them if you are not familiar with Angelique as we weren't. Uh, it's a treat. Tell us if you read them too. So those titty books, true, true, true titty books brings us to our sexiest part in How Can the Heart Forget? Morgan, what was your sexiest part? It's a weird one. This isn't a particularly sexy book. As you may have guessed, I can think of like two times that it got pretty steamy, both of which involved the heroine, neither of which involved the hero. The first is the cat burglar scene. So there's a cat burglar afoot in their suburb and she's just heard about it at the barbecue and she goes home and sure enough, she sees a man creeping through her yard. So she calls her local Barney Fife, who there's this whole thing about, like, the incompetence of small-town police. He, first of all, he just wants to chat. She calls him because it's an emergency, and he just wants to chat with her about her family, get, the get caught up. And then he's like, oh, a cat burglar is coming. Lock yourself in a bathroom. And she's like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to defend my home. So this guy comes crashing, this cat burglar comes crashing into his house and he says something about how Sue abandoned him and she's like, oh, that must be his partner. It's a male-female duo who has been ransacking these homes. She ends up like tending to his wounds, tender ministrations, which I love, 
And then the police show up and she decides that she's going to hide him in her boudoir and let him get away. And it's just like subversive enough and it's also like intimate enough. And I was actually pretty rattled by the idea because I, I, you know, did not know. At this point, I wasn't that comfortable with the book. I did not know where it was going to go this guy creeping up her lawn it's so scary and he ends up being really charmed by her and like her pluckiness and her assertiveness and she's like and the reason she decides to like protect him from the police is that first of all she doesn't trust the police to be safe with this person right and the idea that even criminals don't deserve to be brutalized and she also kind of feels this need for adventure suddenly and so she decides to make her own and keep this edge alive in her suburb. I think it's sexy because it's subversive. I also loved the idea that like property is irrelevant towards adding a little bit of spice to your suburban life. And also like this guy is so, is presented so sexy and mysterious and he like needs, but he's vulnerable, right? Like he needs help. Probably the most interesting depiction of a male character in the whole book, maybe. I think that's true. My sexiest part also does not involve the hero. Um, it's <laughs> when she goes to that barbecue with the new married couple with Betty, and Betty's Montana cousin is there, and he is also an extremely tall drink of water, and there's this moment where he's, do you want to, like, come out and see my new car? And she's like, yeah, okay. And I'm like, oh, man, he's going to, like, try to make a pass at her, and, like, maybe she's going to, like, turn him down, and, like, he's going to turn from this very charming person into, like, a less charming person, was my thought. But instead, he's like, so I'm going overseas with the army. Do you want my car? Because, like, I think you probably need a car. You're a girl who, like, needs a good time and adventure. And she's like, oh, man, that's so generous and insane. Thank you. No, thank you. I'm okay. And he's like, all right, well, do you want to give me a good send off anyway? And she's like, sure. And he just like plants one straight on her face. And they have like a very passionate kiss extremely passionate and she's like this is fine because he's leaving I may never see him again and this is exciting I can feel my heart race that's all the idea that she's like yeah I'm gonna be kissed real good by this Montanan as he leaves for overseas perils I loved that yeah and he was so funny and charming he pretended to be a cowboy at the beginning to when he first met her he also offers her his, his car because he's like I think you appreciate this car and I think that's a moment of like being seen by you're not who people think you are you're someone who would appreciate my over-the-top sports car and uh I see that about you and so I know that I'm gonna give you a kiss and it's gonna be great I did I loved that part uh weirdest part I mean, the, like, sister falling in love with Peter, marrying her step-uncle, uh, is weird. The race stuff is weird. The Irish stuff is weird. Um, but I want to talk about the gun safety conversations that happen in this book. Because I always have this idea of, like, people having an unproblematic relationship with guns up until Columbine. Turns out that was not true. Uh, <laughs> they have a very problematized relationship. There's like 
a whole conversation about whether or not they want Charlie to have a gun as bank security. They find out that they make the point that like even someone with gun training like him in an emotional situation becomes not trustworthy with a gun. She is afraid to have this cat burglar, you know, caught by the police because she doesn't want him to get shot for a bad reason. Like, it's wild. Like, it happens more than once in the book. And they're having the same conversations and the same, like, difficult reconciliation in this moment. Post-World War II, it's already present and it probably predates that it was so wild to read an american novel as you say that did not have an unproblematic take of gun ownership it was so weirdly refreshing to hear my own concerns and the concerns like reflected back at me from this period in time where it's like just because you are a good guy and you have a gun doesn't mean that you'll be able to stop a bad guy in fact you'll like likely harm others right like he says like this isn't the wild west that's not how it works right I was shocked I was shocked by how modern that felt but also just like saddened that the conversation like hasn't moved (laughs) oh yeah yeah Oh, it was it was hugely anxiety inducing for me that this is this book is how old older than my parents. And like we've had the same conversation. It just feels it really made it feel endless. And like, I guess there was part of me that thought like with enough time, (laughs) this can be resolved. And it just seems like oh no, this is always, like, even, like, the idea of, like, well, the people who have these problematic views are aging out of the voting pool. Uh, But no, this really clearly demonstrates that these ideas are perpetuated generationally uh, because why else would we still be having this conversation? Uh, So that sucks and uh, was something I had not realized. And I was perhaps naive. I was definitely naive. But it's crazy to me that reading this category romance brought that fact to my attention. What was your weirdest part? Yeah, that was really weird. Um, honestly, I think the FBI stuff is my weirdest part. And like, and I think part of it is part of this gun conversation as well, because like the FBI agents themselves would have much more violence about them and they didn't they were like kind of bumbling bureaucrats who couldn't figure it out and this was a very weird depiction in a romance novel of male authority in this way and I also think the cops come into this question where it's like yes yes You know, he tells her to leave the front door open and she's like, there is a, what if the burglar uses the front door? And he's like, that's great. We'll just trap him inside your house and like flush him out. And she's like, that, that's a terrible plan. That's a terrible plan. I am here and all of my things are here. Like that is a recipe for disaster. And so like the depiction of male authority in this book was strangely subversive because it was really bumbling. Yes. And like, even when her sister is like, okay, yeah, like I forgot to lock the safe. Her sister also makes the point that like, I've never locked the safe and they never gave a fuck. Like, why would I prioritize it if no one in authority had ever told me to? And it's like their father is kind of seen as this 
perfect man, but it's also because he's completely opaque. Like, he's never around. <laughs> totally. Yeah, he's absent all the time. Yeah. Meanwhile, like, the the patriarch who is present, right, the owner of the bank, very much like a soft boy. He doesn't really exert that much authority or command that much authority. I think that, yeah, that's such a good point. Because there is, like, there's a presence of, like, all of these bodies of American, specifically American, masculine authority, and they're all seen as, like, the problem of the book. Their incompetence. Their general incompetence. Right. And their lack of awareness around their own incompetence. Yeah. And, like, the one competent person is Anne, and he fires her because his nephew says he's uncomfortable with the idea of the neighbor gal being around gunfire. And that scene is like, oh, brother, here we go again. This book, when I went to sit down to this conversation, I was like, this is going to be pretty boring. But getting to talk about this book uh, has revealed there's so much depth here. And I think I just wasn't equipped to find it without a conversation about it. That is also my feeling because I think this book is one that like, it's so subtle as as to be boring, but there is a lot here and it's worth uncovering. And like, yeah, I absolutely wouldn't have gotten here without you. I would have had like this implicit thing where I'm like, oh, that's that's like a niggling feeling that I have. It was made explicit in this conversation. Yeah, like there's something there, but like, is it worth excavating? And it's, you know, this book isn't even like... It doesn't become a category romance until it's republished for, like, the fourth time by Bantam Books, who makes it, like, its own Emily Loring line, which is kind of out of character for category romances, which tend to have, like, a specific topic or vibe around them. Um, but I'm still glad that we found this gorgeous cover and <laughs> chose this book for conversation. One thing I'm really curious about moving forward is whether or not this book how it compares to Emily Loring's, the work that she completed on her own. Like how much of this perspective and feeling, especially the subversive stuff, is present in her work and how much of it might have been snuck in by the ghostwriter who, once again, was formerly an assistant of Eleanor Roosevelt. I agree. I think like that is definitely an open question for me. One that's worth thinking about, but also I think this book was really good at that proto-feminism in a way that, like, it's baked in. There's no conversation about it. It just exists in the world of this book. Yeah. All right. For our first episode of Category Is... But we would love to hear your perspectives. If you've uh, read an Emily Loring, how, if, if you can provide any context for comparing her posthumous work with her pre-death shit, uh, <laughs> please let us know. Tweet at us. We're at Mance underscore Woe or we're on Instagram at Womance. And we even have a Facebook. Come hit us up. Come, come have a conversation with us. Yeah, join us because we want to hear uh, your perspectives. And with that, I mean, I guess I would just say loosen your ruby red silken cocktail dress selected especially for the country club dance. But never your principles. Mwah. Well, golly, 
Gee, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabel. That's me. And Morgan. That's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week. Mwah. <laughs>